0: Hey y'all and welcome to the Hill Country Conservative. My name is Sebastian. I'm Christian. And today we have the space lawyers back again for part two, we have Chris Hearsay and Nathan Johnson with us. Uh, Do y'all want to introduce yourselves again for a little bit?
1: Yeah, my name is Chris Hearsay. I'm the co-founder and chair of the board of directors of the Space Court Foundation.
2: And I'm Nathan Johnson, the other co-founder and the executive director of the Space Court Foundation. And Chris and I talk about space law.
0: Yeah. And I don't know if you guys, for those of you listening, you know, we did an episode with y'all a couple of weeks ago. Loved it. It's one of our most popular episodes we've ever done. Uh, And I I said I had so many more questions that we couldn't fit it all into just one hour. I think it was also our longest episode we've ever had. And uh, yeah, so we guys, we brought you guys back for part two. There's been some interesting developments that I do want to talk about a little bit. I did see that the director of NASA. I think I mentioned it last time too. But the director of NASA said that if Biden gets elected, he's he's quitting NASA. I looked into that. That's not actually that uncommon for the director of NASA to you know leave when a new president gets elected. But what are you all's thoughts on that? Is it wor- worrisome? Interesting? What do you all think?
1: Part for the part for the course. I mean, I, I I've known Jim. I've worked with Jim. Um, I know a lot of those folks, uh, you know, on the, on the top floors of NASA and, you know, this is just, it's just politics. It's, it's the, the usual ritual going into a new administration, but, um, you know, despite, you know, Jim wanting to, uh, to leave, I mean, it's, his, his right. And it's highly unlikely anyway that Biden would have kept him around. So, um, really the, the point is, is that, you know, he had a lot of accomplishments this year. Um, he, he tried to, uh, uh, to get a lot of, lot of stuff done. He was successful in many areas and some, you know, political inertia, timing, bureaucracy, Congress, you don't always get what you want, but, you know, I, I think at, at the end of the day, you know, Jim can hold his head high and, and say that, uh, he did a great job at NASA and, you know, whoever's going to come next, uh, is going to pick up that torch and move it forward. And, and that's the way NASA is. And I think it's really important, you know, while politics will invade the rhetoric, uh, uh, from time to time, um, NASA is is really nonpartisan. You know, all, it doesn't matter if it's a Republican administration or or, or Democratic administration. Everyone there, and, and I don't think this is this is not meant as an insult, but they're all nerds that want to do, They want to go to space. They want to move things forward. They want to do cool stuff. And um, you know, people want to be a part of that. And you know, I've worked with with many people uh, who have moved NASA forward. Uh, in a way that I don't think, you know, would have been possible to imagine 20 years ago, but they've been able to do it in the last 10 years alone. And, uh, you know, both the Obama administration and, you know, I hate to say it, but even this Trump administration, it comes to space. It's really, it's really progressed things to a point where we're at the point where we can see lots of successes, not just with NASA, just with NASA programs, but just the entire industry, how it facilitates, how it partners, what resources it gives, what what kind of programs it uses to promote the industry to do cool things either on the ISS or across the solar system, right, or in space, and looking at what we're doing, you know, uh, with with the Hubble and with other telescopes that are bringing back new data. So you know, it's it's not always good to get caught up on human space flight. You know, it's always good to look at you know all parts of NASA, but. Um, you know, by and large i think you know the last two administrations at least with the people they've had at nasa have done a tremendous job to uh, to meet its mission and to and to grow um, you know i think what it's meant to do which is to help facilitate a u.s uh, space industry as much as to promote a civil space industry that does great things
2: yeah i definitely think that as chris said administrator breinstein can hold his head up high and is leaving the office with the you know very well regarded by people in the space industry. Um, And, you know, I do think that the initiatives that started during his tenure uh, will be things that continue. Um, Now, initiatives doesn't necessarily mean uh, budget items. Um, You know, big projects still require a lot of money um, and ambitious projects like the Artemis landing um, which was already on an ambitious schedule, um, or it's always going to face delays. So, you know, those human spaceflight missions, those budget items may get delayed, may get pushed around. Um, those are also really controlled by Congress through the purse strings. But uh, as far as diplomacy and international agreements, I think Administrator Breinstein's
0: tenure was excellent. Yeah. And I will say that the main Republican concern that I've been seeing about this whole changing of the guard is uh, the communication between the private space entities and NASA working together, SpaceX, Blue Origin, all of them. What do you all think the future for that is going to be? I think it's still going to be very positive because the Obama
2: administration uh, continued the commercial cargo program uh, that you know was being set up during uh, the Bush administration. Uh, and then during the Obama administration, they began growing the commercial cargo program into the Commercial Crew program. And we saw the Commercial Crew program come to fruition just this summer with SpaceX. So you know, Democratic and Republican administrations in the modern era uh, have both been focused on trying to encourage development of private space industry. So I, I don't think that that aspect is, uh, should be of any concern.
1: Um, yeah, I think and by and large, a lot of the, the stuff that you see as maybe reflected as complex, really mostly has to do with heavy lift launch vehicles and the future of, of those class of vehicles and what they do to support NASA programs or commercial endeavors. And a lot of the times, the, the issues are generally revolving around government contracts, and in particular, uh, DoD or Air Force contracts or Space Force contracts, being able to launch U.S. Uh, uh, assets, you know, GPS satellites, uh, spy sats, things like that. And you know, at the end of the day, they're serving a very limited purpose because of their capacity. Like they can engage in human flight, they can go. Uh, and send objects uh, on hyperbolic orbits out of the solar system or to, to distant planets. But by and large, most of the industry, the launch industry, are smaller and medium launch vehicles. And so they're supporting the regular business of people putting up CubeSats and small Sats and const, you know, smaller constellations and things like that, things that enable commerce and business. And those things are getting cheaper. Those things are getting miniaturized. And NASA has played a tremendous role, as Nathan said, like in the commercial uh, cargo and crew program. And you know, that's that's something that has been around for almost, you know, Wisconsin's been around for over 15 years, um, is they were looking to retire shuttle. And I think it's, you know, it's about it is a success, it's proven it to be a success, but with regular flights, it's going to change the dynamic. And NASA, you know, is a big anchor tenant for that, but it is part of their role. they help build the space station. They run the programs. And the other big feature that they actually added last year was the creation of a private astronaut mission program, which is gonna enable people uh, to go to companies like Axiom and Axiom Space, which is based in Houston, mm-hmm. uh, and try to uh, get on a flight. You know, if they have the money, um, it's, it's a lot of money. But if you have the money, you know, you can go to space if you meet the requirements. And that's a huge change and that could not have happened without NASA.
0: Right.
1: And working in partnership. Oh, you cut out there. Christian, did
0: you have your question?
3: Uh, well, I mean, it kind of got addressed. I was just gonna ask, uh, like, um, I never even really considered how often, uh, I think someone mentioned that it's kind of often for them, the head of NASA, to change in and out after an administration um i guess i was just gonna yeah. kind of ask like a why is it that they tend to do that i i mean i i agree with what you said earlier i always pictured nasa as that um agency of i'm just here to do space stuff and politics earthly politics doesn't i don't bother with right you know yeah. i always pictured them as one of those roll with the punches kind of people or agencies right
1: yeah so yeah, yeah, you, you got to look at that. You got to understand the history of NASA. You know, when when NASA was first created, Eisenhower picked a guy named T. Keith Glennon, who was a huge fiscal conservative, didn't want to spend any money, uh, especially didn't want to spend money on human spaceflight. He thought that was a waste of money. But that view at the time was also shared not only by Republicans, but by Democrats. People were highly skeptical uh, whether it was worth the money, you know, you know one one way you could look at it is it could feed X amount of people versus it could build X amount of bombers during the Cold War. So, you know, you you really had to have that justification. And what ended up happening was the U.S. kept getting beat to symbolic firsts. Uh, and eventually, you know, when Kennedy won, uh, he redirected the mission and asked to go back or to go to the moon, right? And that changed everything. And And what happened is, Remember, administrators serve at the pleasure of the president. Well, T. Keith Glennon, being a Republican, he left. He didn't want to do it anymore. They had a completely different vision. So yes, they are they are generally left to build up. But what are they building up, and for whom, and, and how are they building it? So, you know, after T. Keith Glennon, you had uh, Jim Jim Webb, uh, and he's the one that that basically helped you know birth Mercury and uh, and Apollo and Gemini. Uh, along uh, with other, a lot of other different people, but he was the one who, like a Bridenstein, and probably was, Bridenstein was probably the, 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 the last one since Jim Webb to be a politician that understood Congress because he came from Congress. And Jim Webb had huge relationships in Congress and was able to get the money for what he needed to meet the president's vision, right? And certainly after Kennedy was assassinated, uh, Johnson really, really wanted to, to make this happen before the end of the decade, right? you know us sending men to the moon and they achieved that goal and so what happened is that then nixon comes into office and everybody's like what's the next big thing well in this case there was a there was sort of a, a fight between do we build a space station or do we build a space shuttle and so politics really entered uh a new phase in, at nasa at that moment and um and as you know like, the space shuttle concept was a uh, uh, first basically championed and built up. Now, that that was all flawed. But the problem is, is what that did is it created jobs. Because the one thing you also have to remember about the creation of NASA is that it was a compromise. And part of the compromise was making sure that high science and technology divisions of the, of the government, in this case, NASA, were placed in Southern states to incentivize economic development. And that has been the anchor of NASA, and that's why all those field centers, you know, you look at, look at them all, most of them are in the south. That was designed on purpose. Uh, uh, to a large extent, some of those facilities had previously existed because it used to be an organization called NACA, um, which I believe is the national, um, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to forget the national, national uh, I forgot what the first aid stands for. It's like the National Civil Aviation Authority or something like that. Um, but they were like an R and D program, the government. So if you wanted, if you were like Boeing or Lockheed or the air force and you wanted to test a new wing design you went to NACA to get those tested. And so NASA became a fusion of a whole bunch of different things. And therefore, because it was a lot of money to run NASA Congress started leveraging that, you know with appropriation bills, give programs to this field center give programs to that field center and it created a heritage over time where people competed for dollars and congressmen became more and more uh, guarded of, of their districts uh, if they had NASA field centers in them because you could get science money and that was a really big deal. But then it, then you have the second problem is look at who built the shuttle, look at all the all the other um, engines and rocket parts and, and bodies and fairings for, for NASA. It was a whole system of companies, Rocketdyne, Boeing, Lockheed, Aerojet, And eventually a lot of them over time uh, basically bought each other up. And then there's, you just really basically have an oligarchy, right? Because at that point you have a limited amount of companies that can build these high uh, tech, very expensive, requires thousands of jobs to build thing that is instilled within what presidents want to take up, which is their space policy, right? They want to do the next thing and they want to build on Kennedy's future. But every time they tried to do that, you know, coming out of the 70s and 80s and 90s, didn't really go that far. And the problem is, is that it stalled really quickly in Congress in the late 70s and through the 80s where Congress just didn't want to spend money anymore. And so that's where you had in the 90s, you have this this movement towards commercialism. Uh, And then by the 2000s, you had the shift over, what are we going to do with the shuttle? Which way are we going to go with NASA? Are we going to still be building multi-billion dollar programs? Or are we going to try to get leaner, right? And um, a lot of these ideas came out of the Defense Department. So to answer the basic question about these administrators, well, many of the administrators were people who had previously worked in the military on big projects. And so it just made sense at the time that people that knew how to run big industrial projects should lead NASA. But that... Only led to more acrimony as you had, you know, more and more unrealistic goals set for space, uh, lots of different concepts, and obviously the the shuttle um, then being retired, you know, really changed a lot of the landscape. And so over the last 15 years, you have this really huge commercial push. Now, the one thing, um, the one thing I can say is, uh, you know, politics still invades it. I would say probably up until. Dan Golden, I think he was like one of the longest serving NASA administrators. So that's probably what you have in your mind. But when you get into the W era and you get into the Mike Griffin area, you know, things become a little bit more acrimonious between the rise of these commercial actors like SpaceX and Blue Origin and others fighting with ULA and uh, and Boeing and Lockheed for different types of launch contracts. You know, we're talking billions and billions, five, 10, 15, 20 billion dollar contracts. That's a lot of money. And so they'll deploy whatever they need to get their point across. But sometimes other things intrude, like for example, when um, uh, when Bolden got picked under the Obama administration, um, there was a US senator that leveraged his friendship and his, his uh, ACA vote based upon Bolden getting in. So, you know, it, you, know you, you can't really have, it's really hard to get anyone to work for long periods of time in Washington to organize these big missions because there's constant political pressures. I mean, just look at, at turnover in FBI directors in the last 20 years. So, you know, there's, there's lots of different things and it's very, very hard when, you know, the president can pick whoever they want. You know, sometimes given the acrimony in politics, these days, people just don't want to stay. They want to go off and do their next thing. Does that, does that sort of answer your question?
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, I do, again, like I, I have a brief idea of what I don't want to say. NASA kind of gets swept under the rug in any way because you know, like, it, I, I, mean, I guess it's um more when they do something big that they kind of pop up into the realm, right? It's kind of yeah. one of those things that people uh uh wait for something to happen, and uh, I, I wish it kind of would change because. I mean, me, I'm not a real big necessarily science person, but I've always been interested in the idea of space. And a real big bucket list thing of me, I I hope it's possible, I'm still quite young, is to actually leave the planet. You know, I would love for space travel to be kind of a commodity when I, you know, however old I may be when it does happen. I do want to be alive or something like that. And um, I think your explanation uh, is something more people need to hear. To kind of get an idea of it because people kind of just expect NASA just to do their things without really giving it much yeah. other thought you know uh, well, I mean I'm sure they do that a lot of other agencies but um it, it's very interesting to see how much actually goes into it and I always thought more on the realm of it just depends on the budget this year right or for the next four years <laughs> right that they're very um uh, budget orientated I know I think I'm if I'm correct me if I'm wrong I think the Obama administration was pretty harsh on uh, their budget.
1: Well, that was because they were cutting the constellation program that Bush had teed up. Um, but the problem is, is like, like if presidents wanna do something, they need to do it from the beginning. You can't wait till like your last two years in an eight-year term or even your last year in your in a four-year term, like you have to get started, which is which is interesting because that's, basically what what the trump administration kind of did i mean they had very savvy people running their space policy um and they got started like like immediately and and that's actually what what the commercial industry wants to see i think in my opinion because they that's where the continuity needs to be it needs to be the continuing engagement because there have been presidents because of messaging or whatever sometimes i mean nasa used to you know it's wax and wane in its ability to communicate well um, despite it being such a global brand uh, you know they 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 were able to you know they've been able to move a lot more nimbly recently because to a large extent the the republican congress has been given in that much latitude and 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 there has been i would say even a, a philosophical shift like even some of the ideas about like property rights and all that like they're always there and there was always more of like a cold war on whether or not we're gonna move forward on anything like that. But, you know, everyone sort of agrees now's the time. You know, now's the time, there's lots of different companies, you know, providing lots of different solutions, not only for government, for the private sector, and it's, it's changing the internet of things as well. And so, you know, NASA, when it engages and, and, and you have an administration that can engage, you know, because they're, they're two different things you know, keep in mind, right? So nobody's gonna run the way that NASA's been run. Sometimes they'll, you know, be micromanaged by Congress. Sometimes they'll be micromanaged by the president. Sometimes they'll just be left alone. And, you know, sometimes there could be dependence on the administrator, but the ability to be nimble in this situation and to lead with an administration on the, you know, a lot of different policy areas to move the industry forward. I mean, that's what people wanna see. Because that's that's how you get the energy into the system to be able to hear cool announcements about like a company like Nanoracks uh, uh, or Axiom or um, you know or or what SpaceX wants to do. Like otherwise, you have to remember, like in the '90s, if these companies were trying to to they're doing now, then with that technology, people just would have dismissed them. So the perception has also changed as well.
2: Right. Yeah. There's there's another thing. But- that goes on too, is that, you know, in modern, modern US government, we've, we've been having budget crises, you know, since the the 2008 um, recession, and we've had continuing resolutions, we've had flat budgets. um, And there's definitely a sense of when you look at budgets, if you're going to increase an agency's budget, like that's going to be, that's going to stand out, that's going to be really heavily scrutinized. So Sometimes you have to juggle what you can do in the agency with that cap. Uh, And during the Obama administration, they wanted to spend more money on the commercial cargo and commercial crew program at the cost of developing the space launch system. And, you know, Congress at the time, that was one of the back and forth. So like, no, we'd rather spend more money on the space launch system at the cost of the commercial cargo and commercial crew program. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, it, looking at that, we again have seen the commercial crew program finally pay off and come to fruition. It took more than one four year term to do that, though. And I think it's that, that as an example of this change in mindset that Chris is talking about from NASA. Um, I think that, that shows that, yeah, you can start getting some things to last long enough to come to fruition. But, you know, it takes about 10 years. That, that hasn't changed too much since the Apollo mission in the 1960s. It, it can take about 10 years to see something really, truly come to fruition. Uh, and it's that timing thing that uh, also applies to what Chris said with the technology that is finally ready. We saw companies in the 90s that were trying to do private commercial launch that failed because the timing wasn't right. And then just five years later, little startups like SpaceX and Blue Origin, and then 10 years after they start up, you know, they're part of this big um, market now. So again, the timing also comes into play and that's not necessarily something that you can really control.
0: Well, do you think with all the politics involved in NASA, I mean, just, just for private entities' sake, you can see more and more private spaceports opening up in the next
1: four to 10 years? It's quite possible within a decade, I think. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the one thing about, let's say point to point, for example, um you know that's that's something that people are are been talking about for a very long time uh it's sort of like this would be really a great thing to have but is it worth it you know and 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 can you do it regularly you know with enough volume to make it worth it so you know that is one question and then the other question is um you know Do we flip the model where you have municipalities, states try to attract businesses like New Mexico did for Virgin and um, rather than readapt the Air Force launch ranges? I mean, you know, Oklahoma, I think, has been looking at a spaceport. Wisconsin has looked at a spaceport. I think Montana. And, you know, unfortunately, geographically, there are just some places that are not good to fly from. Because right. of physics, and um, you know, or, or the or just population density. I was gonna but, say Oklahoma
3: definitely has its weather issues. Uh, like, isn't Tornado Alley like right? But
1: here's, yeah, yeah, yeah. But here here's the real the real rub in in that in that question. The real rub is the fact that because you have to generally take off from something like an airport or something near an airport. Um, and so far, most of the, uh, at least the most active, um, uh, uh space ports also happen to coincide with some of the most busiest airline routes. Right. And so the increased flight rate is going to send shockwaves through the aviation industry because the air, the, the launch vehicles gets the right away. So they close off the airspace. And so then all the aircraft has to divert. So that's time and money to, to airlines, right? And, uh, um, you know, that's something that's actually been, that's been been fought in the background in D.C., in space policy circles, in the wonkiest of circles for at least seven years. And, um, you know, this is something that that is tied to real dollars, right? And the airline, I can tell you, the airline lobby has a lot more invested than... The, the nascent space lobby. right? Um, it's not, not to say that they, that they don't have good lobbyists, it's just that there's just more money. And, um, and, you know, what are you trying to protect? Because at the same time, you know, the, there's lots of people that, that fight over subsidies to keep these rural airports open, right? And, and that's something that, you know, has always been an ongoing conversation. It got really big in the 90s, uh, came back in the 2000s, but I never really heard anything about it since. Again, like it's it's all about like what what are you trying to get out of having a spaceport, right? And who's going to pay for it? Because the amount of money it takes to do the environmental impact study, to go through the licensing fees, to pay for all the lawyers and the lobbyists, and 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 everything else in between to be able to execute this in at least ten years or more, um, that's a lot of commitment and a lot of capital that you got to commit to so uh you know that model is still suspect and uh i think right now you know the there are uh, a few like i think camden um is looking like it might be getting its license soon um which is in georgia on the coast but you know the the problem is, is that no one's really sitting around figuring out whether or not these are all actually good places to put these things and are they serving a particular market class? And then what are all the externalities? Um, again, because mostly the FAA is only going to care about that environmental impact study. Because that's that's all they really care about regulations. Can you protect the people around it? And so, you know, that 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 limits the ability for people to go and try to find a new place for a spaceport and so I have to wonder like like how many more can we actually put on this earth and which is why you have people come from time to time and they say well I got this great idea let's put a spaceport on a ship and flat, and then sail it out and launch from the equator or something like that you know the sea launch concept, but that that's never really proven to be viable either because now you're limited on your mass class and the the real, at least, viable <laughs> economies are are generally in the class of vehicles that SpaceX uses, um, and so you know it it becomes really again a a market issue, how many people are launching to that to that to those orbits with those mass restraints, and uh, and so this is where you know you need to incentivize the payload areas, right? But then you can see how it all feeds in because you have more payloads, you have more launches, you have more disruptions in national airspace. National airspace people fight with the the space people, now they wanna reduce the cadence, which affects their bottom line. So there's a real tension right here in the policy. And I don't know, and it's not clear how it's gonna break. And that's gonna drive, I think, any future, anyone that's wanting to invest in a spaceport.
0: Right, and I was gonna say, I mean, when you talked about the ship, I remember being a kid and they were talking about launching the shuttle off of an airplane. taking the taking the shuttle up and then launching it from that I used to have a little I used to have a little model my dad worked in uh, the NSA and then my brother he uh he interned for NASA for a summer and I just I have a pretty pretty wide space exploration not personal background but just kind of hearing thing background but I kind of want to get back to I mean he clearly the Space Court Foundation y'all are lawyers uh, I, I want to get into a little bit more of the legalities of, uh, and I know you touched on it, but of private spaceports, what administration would control it, uh, local laws, would they have jurisdiction over federal laws, things like that, what are y'all's thoughts on that? Well, I mean, that, the, the first part of your question, you know,
2: who's going to have jurisdiction over spaceports, and that's going to be the FAA, um, not just because, you know, airports and planes, but because of the FAA's Office of Commercial Space Transportation. Um, that's an office that uh, is primarily concerned with the spaceports and the private launch vehicles. Um, and so they recently, I can't remember if it's in the past year or past two years, um, you know, had a, a new associate administrator and a reorganization so that they could sort of have two separate offices, one of which focused exclusively on the spaceports. Mm. Um, So from a federal level, you have the FAA. Uh, Now, local laws versus state laws versus federal laws, that's all gonna go through your pretty standard um, federal law analysis. Uh, There was definitely a talk early on about a need for a federal law on um, indemnification, uh, um, sorry, uh, liability, federal law for liability for spaceflight participants. Because at the very beginning, you had individual states passing their own laws to try to encourage launchers to come to their state by saying, if you launch from our state, our state law will not hold you liable for you know the death of any of your Spaceflight participants. Well, that sounds great, but then all of a sudden you have a patchwork of laws across the whole country uh, that affect people differently depending on where you launch from. So there was a push or talk about having a federal law to preempt all of those state laws on that matter. Um, so, you know, it's still, it, it becomes a lot more terrestrial the more that you look at it. Because these are all private businesses with private customers, and that, it's going to be treated almost like any other business.
1: Now, if you want to put a spaceport on the moon, then you have a whole other series of problems.
3: That, that was going to be my next question. I was because... like, right, what happens once we're out <laughs> there? You know? what? Like, well, who's, see, who's in control of Mars? Who's in control so, of the moon?
1: Okay, well, if you just want to talk about what what we know as FAA regulations, AST regulations, FAA AST <clears throat> regulations. So when it comes to this, um, they have this power by statute. They delegate the rulemaking uh, from uh, the Department of Transport, or sorry, from FAA, or sorry, Department of Transportation. The FAA can do this. So when they regulate it at that level, right? It's based upon. Are we talking about U.S. persons? And are we talking about the territory of the United States? And remember, if, you, if you've taken any, any legislation classes or anything, when you read a statute, you know, there's a presumption against extraterritoriality. So if the statute doesn't specifically say it applies outside the United States in some, some way through some principle of jurisdiction. Um, uh, you know, there's just a presumption. And it's just assumed that you did not mean that, you meant within the territory of the United States. And so in this case, you know, it brings up a question about territoriality and whether or not operating uh, with different folks um, uh, on the lunar surface to do some sort of set of operations. Uh, you know, let's just say it's a hypothetical, let's say, you know, Apollo 11, 12, and 13 actually were supposed to go days apart. And their whole idea was just to land a little craft there and to work together to set up a little base. Let's say that, you know, hypothetically they had done that, right? Um, and let's say they also assume that we're talking about today's laws, so we don't have to uh, get into too many hypotheticals because there really weren't that many rules back then. But the whole point is is that then you have this other question about, well, in, in the act of doing that, uh, is that an act of nat- national appropriation in violation of Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty? So that's that's one one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is okay. Well, if you assume that you can land, you, you should be able to assume that you can take off, and does it really matter whether or not you do it from the same place uh, over and over again. Um, so there there is there is a bit of a gray area when you start to think about well what what's practical just to be able to do it, uh, and what how do you interpret the the permissibility of this to the construction of the current rules? So you have this the statute that that says, okay, you're a US person, you want to build a spaceport, great. You go to the FAA and say, where do you want to build it, on the moon? Okay, so they look and say, okay, well, I don't know if our statute applies to the moon, but what we can do, and this is probably what they would do, is that we can say uh, that we wouldn't stop you from doing it. Why do I know this is the answer? Because I actually wrote that letter to the FAA and, and we got a determination when I was at Bigelow Aerospace uh, from the FDA says they, they don't see necessarily uh, any uh, any issues with it uh, of landing a big or a habitat on the moon. And so they're open to the question because it's, it's it's an unclear question and it makes sense, but then it raises secondary issues. Okay, so let's say you're allowed to do it and let's say that you don't say you actually own it. Um, let's say that it's a spaceport and you want to be able to allow any uh, spacecraft uh, that's licensed sensed uh, for launch and reentry to landing a spaceport. Okay, great. How are you going to establish the parameters of the spaceport with respect to protecting anyone that's around the spaceport or outside of the spaceport? In the same way that you would under the regulations uh, need to do that analysis, uh, the third party liability analysis, the E sub C, P sub C analysis, what is the risk of killing someone or risk of destroying property? And you look around and you're on the moon and you don't see anybody, uh, at least yet. Uh, But you see desolation in all directions, really. And you realize, oh, right, yeah, there's no atmosphere. So then you open up the regulations and you look into it and you realize, oh, this is all based on statistical modeling. And so let's say that uh, you're not a very good physicist or engineer or scientist or mathematician and you're reading these regs and you just start putting in some numbers you're like okay well this is what i'm going to certify the faa my license that i need this much space and if you didn't do the math correctly and you didn't take into some considerations you're going to create a more risky regime for your operations because what's hidden within those maths is the fact that it's all dependent upon the acceleration of gravity on earth and so All the limits, all the boundaries, you're saying that you need this many meters and that many kilometers away from something uh, to reduce the probability that if there was a catastrophic failure on the launch pad, that that debris wouldn't harm property or kill people. Well, how do you do that on the moon, right? Well, you got to take the gravity, the acceleration of gravity on the moon, you plug it in. What happens is what you would expect, let's say a couple of kilometer bubble around a spaceport during operations, let's say at Cape Canaveral. Now you're talking about maybe a region the size of Taiwan. Well, if you're talking about the region the size of Taiwan, that's a big space. And if you map that equal space across the sphere of the moon, you're going to do it finite amount of times. So then you have this other problem is, well, who to, to license? And if you don't have something figured out, you're going to run into each other or you're going to just create more hazards by the fact that no one's going to be able to figure out Uh, What's the optimal place to put these things to reduce the amount of risk of operations. And if there was a failure, the problem is, is that you don't have an atmosphere to uh, slow down that reaction. And so again, you have other considerations, uh, including micrometeorite impacts and things like that. So I don't think you're going to get to a point where you can do that despite the fact that there do seem to be a lot of companies that want to go, uh, all at once in the next few years. Um, I don't know what kind of precedent that's set, but you know in this hypothetical, you know what I'm trying to point out is everybody wants to go someplace, but then everyone's going to be tripping over each other and there's really not much you can do about it. right? And so what does that mean from a political point of view? And to a large extent I think you know from a politician's point of view, from a foreign policy point point of view, this is a race. And so it's no wonder that people, you know, want to agitate, you know, in the United States about, oh, well, it's a, you know, we're going to compete with China or we're going to compete with Russia or we're going to compete with Europeans. Well, yeah, but how you conduct yourself is going to to be the driving force of whether or not you can set up a safe system to be able to establish spaceports and do cool stuff on the moon. Yeah. Yes, that's
0: right. My my follow-up to that would be regulation of the laws um i don't know space force is a thing but i I think we decided last time it's not really a regulation uh, that we're thinking of that most people want to think it is what do you see as a government agency to regulate future plans for space laws uh you know politics in space basically
1: nathan you want to take that one
2: um I mean that is a very big and open question right now because <clears throat> you can pretty you can pretty logically think out a US government agency to oversee regulation of an activity in the United States. It's much harder to think about a US government agency regulating uh an orbit in space which is shared by every other country um so you know that specific example which it sometimes is called space traffic management um other times it's called space situational awareness um it's a very big topic and open question um and even more so when you talk about Spaces or habitats on other celestial bodies. Um, you know, inside that habitat, uh, it's clearly US law, um, but what agency should be in charge of regulating those habitats in other worlds? Because if something inside that habitat causes a disruption outside, or if some other country's habitat causes a disruption to the US habitat, All of a sudden, you have an international issue as well. Uh, So we're not there yet. And I have a feeling that people aren't really going to want to overly regulate that ahead of time. Um, You know, there's one of my professors said early law is bad law. Uh, You don't want to prescribe a solution to a problem that you really don't know what the outline of that problem looks like. So until then, in uh, what we've been doing for the past 10 years or longer, is private space industry has been trying to work within the agencies that do exist. So as Chris said, Bigelow Aerospace asked for a determination from FAA AST. That existed at the time and sort of tried to fit their business model within that. Um, the other thing I want to say, though, is FAA AST is a, an interesting example because in the past year there was a push to elevate the office. So the Office of Commercial Space Transportation is under FAA, which is under Department of Transportation. Um, if they elevated that office, then it wouldn't be under the FAA anymore; it'd be directly under the Secretary of Transportation. But that reorganization uh, was not passed, and so. That office has not been elevated yet, um, but you can sort of see between that office and the Office of Space Commerce and the Department of Commerce, um, there are multiple places in the U.S. government that could and are interested in uh, trying to help regulate more uh, more spheres of activity in space.
1: Yeah, and. and- and also add that you know it depends on what, what what are you trying to achieve with your policy are you trying to deter people from doing things or are you trying to facilitate and i think you know as far as i've seen um you know republicans and democrats even through their own lenses their own political lenses they're all trying they're all trying to facilitate you know they don't want they don't want companies to go bankrupt trying to to do something that we're, we're congress has literally said to do um and is, you know, even likely given the money to do it. So, uh, you know, it really is uh, an odd political balance. And sometimes, you know, it, it really isn't even Republican Democrats. Sometimes it's just personal personalities. Um, you know, sometimes you get people that are very enthusiastic about space and then other people that just think this is all bullshit. <laughs> you know, and and it's always incumbent upon, you know, both the public, NASA, uh, um, you know, people who, uh, the commercial industry, um, you know, to tell Congress and make it clear that this is, this is a priority. And, you know, a lot of that's communication, political communication. Sometimes, it, it like I said earlier, sometimes it's done well, sometimes it's not, um, you know, it's really hard to get people focused when there's so many things going on and, and, and sort of the culture is more saturated with just Elon Musk and SpaceX. Right. Um, And so there, there, there is, as Nathan said, you know, there's a lot of changes going on and, you know, you don't want to prescribe too much in early law. Otherwise you will, you will choke the industry. Like that's absolutely true, but it doesn't mean that they're lawless. And I think that's a really important point, you know, to, to, to make because there are rules. It's just, how far can you stretch the current rules? And does it make sense? And do you really want to send a whole bunch of people out to space all at once to provoke, let's say um, um, a military response on earth, <laughs> right? So, you know, there's a lot of things to look at and sometimes, you know, we, we forget that space isn't benign. It's a dual use regime. Everything that enables spaceflights, dual use. It could either be used for peaceful purposes or non-peaceful purposes. So, um, you know, it's the, the politics has is, is always been complicated and I don't see it changing. But how you get the good balance of rules, I think, you know, it really takes smart people and people who can communicate. And, you know, it, 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 and that's one thing that, like, especially when I was at big aerospace and a lot of my colleagues, you can see the ones that, that can communicate the most effectively get shit done. And, and, and that has nothing to do with, with being able to tell a good story. It's all about does it make sense? Can you get people on board with this idea? You know, limited amount of objections. It all we're all trying to achieve the same goal, and that's what a lot of these initiatives are, are meant to do. And I'll um, also because we haven't brought it up. Um, so within FAA, you have uh, an organization which is a collection of, of industry experts uh, called Comstack. It's the commercial uh, commercial space transportation advisory committee. Yes. And, um, I, I, I worked on that committee, uh, when my boss, Mike Gold was the chair and, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of horse training. There's a lot of back and forth, but I think the other thing that uh, came out of my experiences, you know, especially working at Comstack and all my colleagues there is not everyone knows everything. Like not every space lawyer knows all of the physics or not every space lawyer knows all of this particular area of space law. And, and and just like in life, everyone's coming from different points of view. It's just about, you know, are we putting in the work to be able to understand each other? And and I think, you know, when that happens, it's really a nice thing to see, you know, professionals working through a difficult problem, finding a very nice solution where everyone's happy and can walk away. Because the alternative is always like, you know, people, wordsmith thing every damn thing in every meeting but that's you know those are their goals you know not everyone's trying to to destroy space or or make it into a wild west everyone's trying to find the best ways to get the best deal for everybody you know even if it's if it's just the s spacex caring about itself or blue caring about itself you know in particular industries everyone still sees what the goals are at the end of the day and that's creating a robust commercial space uh, industry where you can enable lots of things. You can enable uh, different new technologies and innovation, which is exactly what, what is required just to be able to engage in this industry. So you don't have it, then you're not going to space.
0: Right, and, and I, to apologize, I kind of have to wrap up a little soon. I we, we
1: got a late start here.
0: I need to get back to my law books, but uh, I wanted to take the chance to ask if, if there's anything the Space Court Foundation is doing, any big projects they all want to brag about yourselves for for a minute.
1: Yeah, Nathan, why don't you go first?
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, Well, the Space Court Foundation uh, has an internship program to any law students who are interested in applying. Um, We have research initiatives leading to uh, different elements of our space law library, Space Court Law Library. Uh, And we also have an animated series in development called Stellar Decisis. Uh, in which we have uh, a future hypothetical scenario, conflict in space, uh, and then have it argued uh, before the space court, a uh, tribunal of judges. Uh, and then we follow the judges into the deliberation room, and you get to listen to three real current space law practitioners debate how the law would be applied to this future hypothetical scenario. Uh, that's expected out uh, spring 2021. Uh, and we do have uh, current videos on our YouTube channel, uh, monthly uh, panels talking about things like the Artemis Accords. Uh, and we have a panel coming up on February 4th. If you're listening to this before then, check out Space Court Foundation on YouTube on February 4th. If you're listening to this after then, it'll be recorded and uh, put back up on our YouTube channel uh, about the future of the Outer Space Treaty and whether it's still going to be uh, viable in application to new space activities.
1: And uh, Um, yeah, and we're actually starting our uh, research program and uh, uh, we are working right now on starting, drafting a space law dictionary and also we're, uh, starting uh, what uh, to put together what we're calling the International Yearbook of Space Activities, which will be a chronological compendium of pre space laws. And so if you're interested in doing uh, space research in, in, into law, history, policy, um, you can apply for our internship uh, at our uh, website at spacecourtfoundation.org.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I, I really appreciate the work you guys are doing. I told y'all when, I, when we first interviewed y'all that uh, as soon as I brought up space law in my law school, I got laughed at, you know, they were like, that's not a real thing. That's not ever going to happen. And then as I talked about y'all more and more people checked out y'all's website, uh, I had a lot, a lot of people actually more interested in it than I would have expected. And they're, they're really, I mean, with uh, oil going or not oil going down, but uh, with the ending of the Keystone pipeline and oil and gas kind of going up for grabs right now, a lot of, a lot of my friends are looking into space law now and uh, so I, I'm really interested to see what what continues to happen.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's going to be a lot of changes. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities. Um, you know, whether whether or not you you go into uh, space law as a corporate counsel or a lobbyist or or a Hill staffer or working for an administration, um, you know these. There is, a, there is a lot of energy and a lot of movement, a lot of money, a lot of capital, a lot of, a lot of different things moving towards a very interesting future for you guys. Um, and uh, hopefully it all translates into jobs. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think given given what I've seen in my career over the last 10 years uh, compared to the 10 years before that, um, there's a lot more opportunities now to get into the space world. Um And uh, uh, a lot more companies, there's, there's a lot more diverse set of companies doing a lot of different things, a lot of startups. So there's lots of paths into the industry. Um, You know, if you go and and become a space lawyer, people are going to want your expertise.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was funny that one of the professors I was talking to, uh, when I said I was interested in space law, they're like, oh, you're going to do government contracts then. And I was like, no, it's a little bit different now. And he just didn't realize that SpaceX was this huge business that is, you know, doing all the things that it was doing, um, and he for some reason thought that SpaceX was like a subset of NASA, doing its own thing. So no, <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's really interesting, and y'all, I, I love that y'all are getting the word out there. And uh, yeah, Christian, do you have any last last points? Um, I mean,
3: I mean, the, the, we we probably need another whole hour. I'm still very like. <laughs> i, I, I want to get more into it too because you know there's definitely a lot of things i want to know but i also have kind of gone from where you're talking like it's probably we probably won't know to what happens which you know is pretty uh you know kind of lame but you know those I, that would that should mean more of people should probably be more involved in space also maybe we have an idea of uh um of how to have things kind of set up and running before we go up there you know be kind of lame if World War Three starts because we all wanted the same asteroid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, all right. Thank you guys for listening. This was the Hill Country Conservative. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the Hill Country Conservative. Uh, this was our conversation part two with the guys from the Space Court Foundation. We love having you guys out, and uh, hopefully we'll do a part three sometime soon whenever you guys are ready for it. All right. Thank you. Absolutely.